Welcome to A Bird's Eye View, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of ABA. Here's your host, Tim Crilly. Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Bird's Eye View, a behavioral health podcast powered by Raven Health. I'm still your host, uh, Tim Crilly. Somehow they keep bringing me back, but here I am. And I, I know I say this every time, uh, but I, I am joined by an, an old friend today, and, and I'm really lucky to, to have her on. Uh, it's Dr. Gina Green. I, I know you know the name. I, I, you know, you've probably met her or heard her speak. Um, hopefully, you've had a chance to meet her, or, you know, get a book signed, or you know, whatever the case may be. But um, Dr. Gina Green is kind enough to to join us today. Uh, you know, I don't really need to introduce her. She's a, a legend in the field. I, I, you probably don't even know how many um, journal articles you've written or how often you've been published or, you know, the, the books you've contributed on, but, you know, your impact around this community um, is, is a thing that should be really celebrated. And that's why I'm, I'm really happy to have you on here today. So um, Gina, if you don't mind, uh, just maybe give a little bit of background about yourself, and then we're going to go way back in time and, and talk about, you know, your roots in this community and, and how it all got started, and then um, hopefully get a little bit of, um, you know, sort of where you see us today as a as a group and, and where we might be headed as an industry. Sure. Well, first of all, Tim, thank you for that incredible introduction. Um I think maybe the key word there is old because oh, no. Stop <laughs> I've it. been around for, for a while. Um, so uh, just sort of professionally recapping, um, uh, yeah, I got uh, two degrees, bachelor's and master's degrees at Michigan State University. I grew up in a very small town in Southeast Michigan. And then I worked at Michigan State University on a big grant project for a few years, went to Utah State University for my doctorate in behavior analysis. Um, first job after completing my doctorate was teaching in the um, master's degree program in behavior analysis and therapy at Southern Illinois University. Salukis. The Salukis in yeah. Urbandale. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, from there, I went to, I got very interested in um, stimulus equivalence research as a doctoral student, which was really in its infancy when I was a doctoral program. The very first studies by Murray Sidman and others were just coming out. And so that led me to do some research in that area while I was at SIU. And then to be invited to join the great stimulus control research team at the Eunice Kennedy Schreiber Center near Boston. That was the research program that Murray Sidman had actually started. And at that time, he, um, he had just retired from teaching at Northeastern University, but he still had a um, affiliation and some involvement with the Schreiber Center group. I was in the New England area, in the Boston area, for a total of 12 years working with the Schreiber Center uh, research team and also at what is now the New England Center for Children. Uh, those days it was called the New England Center for Autism. Mm -hmm. but, uh, very, you know, thoroughgoing ABA program for kids with uh, autism and other diagnoses. Uh, I was director of research there for a number of years. Fast forward, moved out to uh, San Diego in 2001. Um, partly, I have to be honest, to escape 
the winters in New England, <laughs> but also because I had some close friends who had moved here and had done some consulting here and really liked it. And I never lived on the West Coast, so I thought, why not try it? Okay. So that's yeah. where I've been. I spent um, uh, from 2009, roughly to the end of 20 or near the end of 2022 as um, a founder, a co-founder, and then the uh, CEO of the Association of Professional Behavior Analysts which we uh, founders established specifically to support the practice side of our field. I um, retired, in quotes, from that position um, near the end of, of 2022 and um, continuing, though, to be very involved in the field. And we'll keep doing that as long as I think I can contribute. So I'm working, for example, with the Autism Commission on Quality on its accreditation program for um, autism provider agencies, um, a military parent organization called Mission Alpha Advocacy. We're working on the TRICARE um, coverage of ABA services for military children with autism, working on a journal, uh, being a guest associate editor for a special issue of Behavior Analysis and Practice, et cetera, et cetera. And coming on really cool podcasts. And coming on cool podcasts yeah, with exactly. Well, perfect, Gina. Um, you know, obviously um, your, you know, your, your career and your, your credentials really speak for themselves, but I, I, I want to, I had an opportunity, you and I uh, were at an event back in November of last year. It was in New Orleans. It was, I think, a I forget it was a it was an APB it was event. The APBA leadership conference. Leadership, sure. And we were, you know, at a little cocktail hour. And Kevin Vick, um, who's on on our team, he, he runs our customer success um, uh, department over here at, at Raven. Um, and he's he's the guy that is not afraid to ask anybody anything. And <laughs> I just love that about him. But it also makes me hide behind pillars sometimes when we're in out in the community. But he asked. Um, he asked you, so how did you get into ABA? And I was like, Kevin, oh my gosh, what are you doing, dude? So, but you you ended up telling an amazing story. And I just, from that point on, I was like, if, I'm, if I ever have a podcast again, I have to have Gina on to tell the story because it was, you know, it, it was a, a really neat story and you're going to tell it in a minute. But I think it's probably something that a lot of people that know you maybe have never heard. And I, I was just hoping that you could you could share that story again. And I'm going to give Kevin credit for 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 being that guy and and, and pulling it out. And, and now, you know, we can get to share it with the with the world. Well, again, thank you. And um, I, I hope I tell it the same way. You'll have to check me uh, on I don't that remember time. exactly. Um, so going, I mean, and we are talking going way back. I'm not going to date myself too much. Dates. But, no, um, dates. I was I was really amazingly lucky to have a psychology class in high school in this little village in Michigan where I grew up. So that's how I first got interested in behavior, I'd say, in general. So then I went to Michigan State University as a psychology major, and I had a friend, a sweet mate in our dorm who was a graduate student who um, was a psychology, getting her, I think, master's or maybe her PhD in psychology at that time. And she was very interested in autism. And so we started sort of talking. I started learning a little bit about autism. But I think the um, maybe the event I told you about and 
what I would describe, uh, I would use uh, Richard Fox's term behavioral epiphany to describe this. As an undergraduate, I'm taking this um, child clinical psychology program and Michigan State University had a, what they called a, a clinic at the time where they at least diagnosed and assessed kids with various potential um, conditions, including autism. I don't think they were doing much in the way of any treatment. This mm -hmm. is, this is, um, I will date myself because I'm talking early 70s here. Anyway, part of the um, practicum for this child clinical psychology, our, our professor was into what was at the time called client-centered therapy. I think that was the term, a la Carl Rogers, okay. where what a therapist was supposed to do and sort of, you know, your, what we think of as, I think, typical talk therapy is reflect back what the client says. So, you know, someone, you know, said they were, uh, you know, was recounting to the therapist that they had a bad childhood or whatever, you'd say, oh, what I hear you saying is, and you would just kind of say it back to them. Um, so there, that, a version of that kind of Rogerian therapy, play therapy, was popular at that time with children with autism. And remember, at that time, autism was still thought to be a kind of schizophrenia, an emotional withdrawal, sure. from cold, rejecting parents, et cetera. But, but the epiphany occurred when, in, as part of a, this class, I had to go into this big room full of toys in this clinic at Michigan State. And my professor and classmates were watching from an observation room. And they just put me in the room with this little girl, probably eight, nine years old, who had been diagnosed with autism. And said, go in there and, you know, do, th do therapy. Do some therapy, great. <laughs> and this child was um, vocalizing sounds, but not words, was toe walking. Okay was spinning around, sort of just randomly bouncing around the room. And I looked at her and thought, how in the world do I do client-centered therapy? Oh, I see you're flapping your hands. Um, I hear you're screeching. It, I'm not meaning to be callous at all about I, I the child, that. but... It just hit me right between the eyes that this client-centered stuff, in my very naive opinion at the time, didn't have a snowball's chance working. of doing much for, for this child. And I had had in a, an introductory, the typical introductory psych class, of course, exposure to what was then called operant conditioning. And I didn't know anything about... Um, operant work with children with autism, I came to learn about it before too long, at least a little bit. But I was drawn to it because it was systematic and based on what you could actually observe and measure. And that was just attractive to me. And I, I just remember thinking, well, maybe something like that 
could possibly help this child, you know, learn to talk. Um, I had seen the video of Lovas's work on, on teaching language to children with autism using what, you know, he always called operant conditioning. And so long, trying to make this long story short, but um, I learned a little bit more in undergraduate school about both autism and, and um, operant conditioning. I had some other classes. Nobody was calling it behavior analysis at the time. I then went on to uh, enroll in a master's program in school psychology. And there again, we were taught um, this sort of systematic approach of you know, writing objectives, breaking tasks down into steps, some direct observation in the context of working with teachers and kids in schools. And again, nobody, it was maybe there were references to behavior modification but um, which, you know, again, talk in the 70s here, mm -hmm. uh, nobody really told me that what was underlying it all was, was um, you know, behavior analysis. I then started working on this project at Michigan State developing a curriculum for teaching motor and leisure skills to children with special needs. And it was very behavioral. It was taking skills, breaking them down, task analyses, teaching component skills systematically with practice and reinforcement and building them into more complex skills. And I traveled around the country pilot testing this program and eventually uh, curriculum. And I got to know some people who actually were trained in behavior analysis, including um, people who had gotten their PhDs at this program at Utah State University in Logan, Utah. And I just got more and more interested. And when I realized that what I wanted to be when I grew up was a behavior analyst. I um, applied to several programs, doctoral programs, got into a couple or three, um, decided to go to Utah State, largely because at the time there was um, a center, the center called the Exceptional Child Center, on the campus that was serving about 100 children with various diagnoses, special needs from neighboring communities, schools that really weren't equipped to, to um, provide their education. So the kids came to this, to this day school at Utah State and um, that included some children who were diagnosed with autism. The director of that program was Sebastian Streifel, a PhD Kansas, University of Kansas trained, doctoral, you know, behavior analyst. And I thought at the time, I just wanted to learn how to do this applied behavior analysis stuff with, with kids with autism and Utah State offered that. Once I got there and started taking classes, I became very interested in the experimental analysis of behavior. And of course, we got all kinds of um, training and exposure to the conceptual side of things, Worked in the pigeon lab for a year. We had a human operant lab there. And then I was doing the supplied work with great training and supervision at, at the center. So um, that's it. That's how I yeah, that's how I get into behavior analysis. And then so it's funny because I think, you know, when we talked about it the first time, you said, Well, I don't know if I didn't have that psychology class randomly in high school, you don't know if that's the path you would have taken. Yeah. It's just funny to think 
you know, the impact that that one semester of high school has had on an entire field of, you know, behavioral health. So well, that's that's, kind of you to say, you know, it's true. So, you know, it's just, it's, you know, to a smaller scale, I was a teacher, I was teaching kindergarten and I had an undiagnosed child in my class, made life challenging, found myself only almost solely focused on him ignoring the rest of the class and thinking, hmm, maybe this teaching thing isn't for me. And I sort of went down that 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 path and ended up in, you know, in, in the ABA, in the ABA world by accident, you know, and not to say that I've had a, a, a huge, you know, the, the, the impact you've had, but I, I do like to think that I have had an impact, you know, sort of my time, sure. in the gym and, you know, the different things I've, I've done, but I never would have I never, never would have happened if that little guy wasn't in my class. I might still be teaching, you know, elementary school um, here in, in California. So it's just, you know, that that's the thing that strikes me. You know, you you, you make you try to make a plan, and 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 the plan, you know, makes its own makes its own plan sometimes. So yeah, I, I think there's some famous saying, and I'm not going to get it right or remember who was the original source, but um, that you know. Yeah, there's there's virtue to planning, obviously got to do that to some extent, but that, you know, I guess it's along the lines of you kind of make your own luck, luck or you jump on opportunities when they present themselves. So it sounds like you and I both kind of did yeah, it. We just yeah. found ourselves in these yeah, circumstances. Fall backwards into things sometimes. And, you know, we we could have done any number of things. And we probably each have reasons in our history why, you know, at that particular point in yeah. time and others, we went one direction and, and not another. But I've always thought there's a lot to that, to taking what the environment gives you in a sense, you know, to looking at opportunities, identifying things that need to be done, things that you're interested in, and then, you know, pursuing that instead of going, oh, I've got this plan and I have to stay on a particular, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. path, which some people do just fine. I don't. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's good advice for, for BCBAs out there, you know, just because you think this, this course of action is going to work when you're working with a family or, or a child, um, you have to be ready to change that plan when, when it's not. And I don't know if everyone um, you know, sort of is, is, you know, solid in, in, in their conviction to be like, oh, well, it has to work. So, but I don't know what to do if, if, if I change it, you know, so it can be a little, it can be a little daunting for people. Yeah. And I, and again, there's, you know, there are good and bad ways, I guess, to take advantage of opportunities. And I want to, you know, imply that, well, you just kind of go here and then there, I'm going to jump on things without thinking through, but it's, I think, recognizing an opportunity getting the best information you can about a way to proceed. If you're working with clients in particular, what's likely to be the most beneficial, the most helpful. And, you know, what I love about behavior analysis, one of the things I love is, of course, the focus on individual behavior and um, understanding that it's, it's up to us to arrange environments to to help people, you know, mm-hmm. improve yeah. and 
and to look at things and, you know, look first to the, the research and that we have these principles, you know, these laws of behavior. We know if we, you know, certain things happen, are arranged, then behaviors like the change or not. Yeah. And, you know, referred to as the principles. If you really understand those well, um, it's not that I think you're going to be able to automatically apply them to every single situation, but it just gives you this great framework, right? This great way of looking at behavior and environment that helps you along with your knowledge of the research literature, hopefully, and good supervisors, mentors, people you can consult with, um, come up with solutions when you need to. Yeah. Do you think if you took the the exam tomorrow, would you get a hundred percent? Probably not. And okay. just another story, if you if you don't sure. mind. Um, yeah. Of course, the the BACB started sort of officially opened its doors in '98. Started yes. offering yeah. certifications. And prior to that, there was the state certification program in Florida. And then I think Oklahoma, California, a couple of other states had picked that up. And Jerry Shook realized that there was a need for um, a national yes, credentialing yeah. program and was able to get the foundational work from, from the state of Florida. Anyway, I was on the Association for Behavior Analysis Executive Council at the time the BACB started. And I'd been kind of reading about professional credentialing and understanding, I think, the, the value and the need. Mm -hmm. Actually, ABAI had tried to do certification of individuals way back in 1980. Oh, wow. And it just never, never really got off the ground. So, um, and Jerry Shook was on the ABA Executive Council at the same time I was, as was Jim Johnston who had been instrumental in starting the certification program in Florida. So when the BACB, the certification program got started, I was you know, definitely very supportive of it. And when they first began offering the certifications on a, a national basis, I was president elect of the Association for Behavior Analysis. Mm. And I thought, I'm not, you know, necessarily at that time, I wasn't directly involved in practice, but I knew the practice side of our field was, you know, was going to grow. Not in my wildest dreams that I think it would grow as fast as it has, but um, I thought, well, I'm going to get this certification because it's important for the field, um, even if I don't necessarily, you know, quote, need it for my work. And I was in Massachusetts and the only there were only a couple of places you could take the brand new national exam. And one of them was Los Angeles. Calaba had picked up aspects of the Florida certification program, been running it in California. And so they had the capacity to do the uh, exams. And I had friends who had moved out from Boston to San Diego. So I came all the way to California, to Southern California, to take the certification exam at Cal State Los Angeles in uh, 
1999. Okay. And Tim, I was terrified that I would flunk that exam. How <laughs> embarrassing would it be yes. <laughs> for the president of the Association for Behavior yeah. Analysis to flunk the certification exam? Oh. And I've been out of school for a while. Right? Yeah. A little bit taking practice, a test in forever. Yeah. I studied. I, you know, read, I think that was must have been the first edition of the Cooper, Heron, and Heward book. Okay. I had this massive Honig and Stadden book on experimental analysis of behavior from graduate school and everything else I could get my hands on and just studied night and day. I was so afraid I was going to fuck. That's a really interesting point. Uh, you know, I remember. I didn't, but no, well, yes. Well, as far as everybody knows. And now, I mean, if I were to take it again it. to go back to your original question, I'd have to start studying all over again. <laughs> Oh God, I wouldn't even know how to spell BCBA at this point, maybe. <laughs> um, I remember walking from the test to the car and thinking, okay, I did it, you know? And then it was a good big relief to just have it done. But yeah. then every day after that, I was like, oh my God, I want to pass. I don't want to have to go through this again. You know, so just then it became this like, please just, can I just not have to do this again? Kind of feeling for me. So, uh, but I didn't have the pressure of being famous. So, you know. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. But um, did you also do the, um, oh my God, did I get that answer correct? No, I my, I think it went in one and right out the other. Um, like, I think. I maybe remembered like two of the questions, you know, when I got out of there, it's just oh, kind of a blur. It's just, it's mind numbing, but you know, it's good. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it is one of my prouder accomplishments, you know, to, to have like not, not knowing what it was when I first set out to do it and then to have it done felt pretty cool. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, obviously we're called a bird's eye view um, and we try to get, you know, a bird's eye view of, of our guests. So what, what do you see right now in in our in our field that you that you you know like or you you know you're worried about or what, whatever it is that you'd like to comment on and and what do you think the next thing we should be thinking about is? Oh, there's so many things. Um, so what I, what I think are our strengths are the science um, and again the principles, the laws of behavior that we know about the ever growing body of of good research. Um, the fact that even though we're still a young profession in comparison to many others, very young, we uh, have obviously grown substantially. That's a two-edged sword. I mean, it has yeah. you know, I think some pros and some cons, but um, one of the, or, or a category of good things are that we're in laws and regulations now. We, meaning our practitioners and our and our field, um, that just you know we were nowhere ten years ago. Yeah, and of course, part of that, uh, largely, was due to parent advocacy for the autism insurance laws, and then licensure of behavior analysts. And I'm I'm very proud to have worked, supported mostly the parents' work on the autism insurance laws, and then having worked on a lot of the uh, laws to license 
behavior analysts. I did serve on the behavior analyst certification board in the early days, after I got certified, of course, um, sure. 2000 to 2006. And, and I, I distinctly remember in BACB board meetings, Jerry Shook, Jim Johnston, Ray Romanchik, um, and others talking about and, and projecting that there would be growth. We're already seeing growth because of mainly Catherine Maurice's book, Let Me Hear Your Voice, had kind of put behavior analysis on the map for a lot of parents of kids with autism who are then like really, you know, asking for those services. We didn't in those days, I don't, I don't think any of us in our wildest dreams saw the autism insurance reform coming. Mm -hmm. And that is really what has driven growth on several dimensions. So obviously demand for the services has gone up because there is health insurance money has brought um, investors in, into um, that area, uh, the arena. Um, because of the demand, the need for more practitioners, we have more programs, right? Master's programs mainly, some more um, undergraduate and doctoral programs as well. And so, um, you know, we have a presence, we're recognized, where I think one of the most important things about a licensure law, state licensure law for behavior analysts, is it, we're recognized as a profession, we're in law as a profession, legally authorized to practice, and we have our own scope of practice defined, and you don't get that, um, except really through through licensure laws. Yeah. Um, obviously, I'm happy that with the insurance reform, um, the laws requiring certain commercial health plans to pay for ABA services, Medicaid programs are supposed to be covering ABA services for Medicaid beneficiaries, and some other kinds of health insurance as well. Um, one of the reasons I supported those efforts was because I could see that was a way to get funding and obviously to make the services more available or available to more people than previously. And, and I do think that has occurred. Um, I agree. Again, not to the extent or necessarily even with the quality and, and you know the way we would have ideally liked for it for it to go because I think the, the growth has just been, it's just been so rapid. It's been rapid, exponential yeah. in the last few years. And I think that's as um, I think it's Jim Carr who describes it as having uh, that growth is just having outstripped the infrastructure in our field. We, we yeah. weren't our organizations and institutions were not, Ready prepared. for it. And so like everybody's been sort of trying to catch up while all of that continues to just, you know, go ahead like a runaway freight train. So yeah. um, I mean, because you look at the numbers, like, you know, there's a graph that you know from the late 90s up until about when I got certified in 2011, you're looking at about under 10,000, you know, yeah. and that. From that point on to the next 10 years, it's basically a straight line shooting, you know, shooting up. And if you look at those graphs, you're talking about the BACB's mm -hmm. data yeah. on the number of certificates. If you look at, at 
those graphs over the entire history um, of the certification programs, look for the year 2007, 2008, and look what happens to that curve from that point on. 2007 is about when the first autism insurance law that required coverage of ABA services was adopted. And then, you know, it's the Autism Speak State Government Affairs team was going state by state by state. And so over the next 10 years, we eventually have those kinds of insurance mandates in all 50 states. Yeah. And that curve that shows that, again, exponential growth in the number of BCBAs and then more recently RBTs um, exactly mirrors the path of autism insurance legislation. Yeah, it's true. Lori Unum started a whole thing and she never probably pictured what it would be, but it, there it is. So, yeah, uh, you know, uh, Gina, I, you know, I, I really appreciate your insight and your, your thought. And I, I, I thank you for coming on and, and joining us. Um, you know, I think, you know, if, if you have any, anything you'd like to let people know that you're going to be up to in the next couple of weeks or months where they can maybe see you speak or anything like that, um, you know, let us know. I know it kind of slows down in the summer, uh, with, with events, but, um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, that just feels like I, the, I, I the haven't noticed the slowdown fall. ever. Yeah. Um, well, thank you again, Tim. And uh, again, I'll say that, uh, just to briefly, since you asked me about both the good and the bad, I think, you know, we've got, we do have many things to be concerned about with the very rapid growth and the large, large numbers of people that are coming into the field and aren't necessarily um, you know, getting all of the information, um, maybe are having to respond to a lot of different you know, financial and other pressures. And so I do have concerns about, for example, the way we're measuring client performance, um, how we're informing parents about the best available scientific evidence. I think we, we need to do a better job of all that. Um, as to things that have coming up, I think my first speaking engagement will not actually be one that many listeners of this podcast will be attending, but there's an Autism Law Summit um, every year for the last several years, Lori Unum's yeah. the main organizers. And I didn't mention that I'm also working and have been for some time with the ABA Coding Coalition. So uh, we are the authors most of us on the coalition are the co-authors of the current CPT codes, the billing codes for ABA services, and the coalition does a lot of work advocating for correct implementation of the, the CPT codes. And so we are, um, coalition members are going to be participating in a, a workshop for payers in conjunction with the Autism Law Summit okay. in October. In um, so that's the it is in Milwaukee and it's around the middle of October. Um, it's actually right on my birthday. So think about that. Uh-huh. Yes. That's a good way to celebrate your birthday. Yes. It's, it's really a good conference. It, it's fun. It's very informative. I was a, a paralegal in a past life before I got into behavior analysis. So I've always kind of liked that, um, the, the legal stuff. So that's what's coming up. Um, I'm working on um, with the, 
military parent group that I spoke about, we're continuing to monitor TRICARE's policies yeah. on ABA coverage. And so we're, we're working with members of Congress to try to mitigate some of the pretty bad policy changes TRICARE has made. So we may be coming out with some things. Again, that organization is Mission Alpha Advocacy. It's a nonprofit, military families, um, doing some some work with various other organizations. So I'll hopefully have some publications. Um, just published a blog spot with Brandon Herskovich from um, Partners Behavioral Health on um, some of these questions about treatment dosages, it's called, or intensive yeah. ABA for young kids with autism. We'll be writing some more um, blog spots there, I expect. Well, um, you know, again, uh, Gina, it's it's been nice getting to know you over the years. Uh, I think last, yeah. last May, I ran into you in the lobby at CASP, and I think we were both sort of just it was like the first time I think anyone had been back to a conference, and I think we were both a little tired. But we we I sat, we probably chatted for forty five minutes, and I learned more about you and just your family and things like that. And it was just really nice to get to know you in that way. And I do appreciate, um, you know, the friendship that we've been able to to build. And I I realize we live close together, and I'm such a heel that we've never gotten together. No, so it's ridiculous that. But you're not the only one, Tim, if it makes you okay. feel any better. Okay. There are a couple of people actually <laughs> well, we near, near San Diego a... or in California that I only see at conferences in some other, yeah. often in some other state or maybe at the Calabo conference. So, so it's so true. Uh, but again, thank you for saying that. You know, I've always enjoyed um, interacting with you. And I, I'm I'm glad we've at least bumped into each other at conferences. But, know, like we have that. We have to do um, something more. Perfect. So, um, you know, I'd love to, you know, let's, let's make this a regular thing. You can be one of our sure. you know, returning champion type of um, guests and we'll just pick a, pick a new topic or I was thinking maybe get getting like a topic wheel and spinning it. And then you have to <laughs> tell us all about whatever, whatever it lands on and, and educate oh us God. a little bit about whatever those topics would be. But again, we'll thank you for sharing some of those, those, those backstories and just that the thought of you sweating over the, you know, that the test is, I think, probably very relatable. <laughs> Everybody well, but probably picture you sweating over it. So I think that's fantastic. I, I was I, I hope that resonates with some other people who have taken the test and, you know, all those folks that are right now working towards their yeah. eligibility to take the test that um, uh, I actually, believe it or not, like taking tests. I do. I find okay. it a good challenge, kind of like okay. a big puzzle and opportunity. So hopefully other people can look at it that way and understand that even us oldsters who've been in the field for years have to sweat sure. <laughs> passing uh, it, those it's exams. It's a, it's a rite of passage. It, you know, yeah. it, it makes sense. So trial by but fire it, sometimes. It's a, it's a great accomplishment um, getting that certification. But thank you, Tim. I, I'd be happy to come on anytime. And, okay. you know, I, I, I love to talk about and, our field and especially about yeah. the science. So I could chat all day. Let me know. So um, to our listeners out there, uh, you know, if, if you enjoyed this, please share this with with other BCBAs or sort of like minded people. Uh, and, and as always, uh, we appreciate you guys tuning in to a bird's eye view and please stay tuned for, for more great content. Thanks again, Gina.
Thank you, Tim. Take good care. This has been a Bird's Eye View by Raven Health. To stay up to date on all things Raven, visit us at ravenhealth.com.